The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of August 14th, 2023. On this week's show, we'll discuss ESPN's embrace of gambling and what it means for the future of the network and of sports betting in America. We'll also talk about the Baltimore Orioles, allegedly, but we, we know that's what happened, suspending their play-by-play announcer for telling the truth about the team. And finally, Rebecca Schumann will join us for a conversation about Simone Biles' comeback and what comes next for the greatest gymnast ever. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. With me from, I believe, Delaware is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. You don't have the we're in Delaware thing behind you from Wayne's World, so I can't tell exactly where you are, but it looks like Delaware. There's a ceiling fan. I am in Delaware, stalking Joe Biden, apparently. Saw him biking yesterday on Gordon's Pond Trail. Had to pull over so that the Bidens and the Secret Service could bike through, but yeah. Did you yell questions at him as a member of the press? I was standing next to the media gaggle, which did yell questions at him. Are you going to Hawaii? And I believe the president responded, looking at it. Thank you for bringing us that news, Stefan. You were there. You were there. I was there. Also with us this week, I'm happy to say, is Van Newkirk. Van is a senior editor at The Atlantic and the host of two of the best narrative podcasts of all time, Floodlines on Hurricane Katrina and Holy Week, which came out earlier this year and digs into the tumultuous week after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. If you like Slow Burn, you'll love Van stuff. Holy Week is amazing. You have to check it out. But not before you hear Van firing off sports takes. Van, it is great to have you with us. Oh, thanks for having me. And thanks for the the kind words coming from uh, the guru of narrative podcasting. That's wonderful to hear. I like that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, and in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, you're going to hear the conversation that Van has told us has been dominating his life, the last several hours of his life. And so you'll get to hear what's been rolling around in his head, which is James Harden uh, calling Daryl Morey, the general manager of the Sixers, a liar and saying he'll never work for him again. Inside the minds of James Harden with Van Newkirk, only for Slate Plus members. If if you're a member, you get to hear bonus segments on this show, Slow Burn and other Slate podcasts. You get to listen to Slate podcasts ad-free. You get to support us. It's a good deal. Slate.com slash hangupplus to sign up. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. Last week, Disney-owned ESPN announced that a casino company named Penn Entertainment had agreed to pay it $1.5 billion for the right to slap the ESPN name on Penn's online gambling operations and to use the network's talent to market and promote what will be known as ESPN Bet. The deal signals the validation of sports gambling as a ho-hum part of American culture. If Disney's okay with it, who isn't? But also ESPN's desperate financial straits. Van, ESPN's revenue and profits are down. Millions of people are cutting the cord. Sports TV rights are soaring. One and a half bill is nothing to sneeze at. But whether inevitable or not, ESPN's full embrace of gambling will fundamentally change the nature of consuming its properties 
ways and maybe not for the better. What do you think about this deal? Uh, so first and foremost, we, you know, it's a licensing deal. It's a licensing deal. A billion looks like a lot of money for us, but you got to remember ESPN with the loss in uh, carriage fees and subscribers every month, they're losing like $100 million a month, something on that order compared to where they were uh, year over year a couple years ago. So it's not a huge, huge game-breaking deal. Even the previous deal that Penn had with Barstool wasn't really that big of a piece of the market. So what we're looking at is an exploratory move an inevitable exploratory move from ESPN into the world of gambling. And for me, I think it's going to be a disaster. So uh, I think it's almost guaranteed to be a disaster, but I've been wrong before, so we'll see. I look forward to (laughs) digging into this more uh, momentarily. But what I'll say to start off is that there is something that is inevitable given the billions of dollars that are swirling around this industry since kind of mass legalization happened a few years ago that it would be, if we're just speaking from a pure kind of corporate responsibility to shareholders type situation, it would be irresponsible of Disney to say, we're not going to even, you know, dip our toe into this enormous pot of money. And so, yeah, there is inevitability here. But as both of you guys were alluding to, there's something that feels shabby about this there is the association that Penn had with Barstool and what's literally going to happen. It's called like, I, I saw a reference to the story, reskinning. It's basically like getting a new case for your phone. I mean, they're just like changing the Barstool label to ESPN. And I just would have thought, Stefan, I mean, if we're thinking corporate responsibility here, what ESPN and Disney really should have done is get an enormous deal from the likes of FanDuel's, DraftKings, one of the places that have the biggest market share, get that five years ago. Get a multi, multi-billion dollar deal to get in on the ground floor here. And it seems like they've kind of, even though they're the biggest player in sports in America, it seems like they've kind of been left with crumbs. And if you're going to, I don't, I don't actually mean this, but if you're going to quote unquote tarnish your brand, or if you're going to sully yourself in this way, you would think that you would get more money (laughs) for it if you're ESPN. And I think they wanted to. Um, And the fact that this is what they ended up getting, I think, is maybe an indication that they are in a little bit of a desperate place right now. Totally. I mean, this isn't that much money, big picture, as you pointed out, Van. And beyond that, they're entering the business like they're buying a fixer upper they're buying a shack on a piece of property that maybe will improve over time this market is dominated by the two brands that you mentioned josh they've got like more than what 70 or 80 percent of the market um this company pen is like three percent of the market so there is an expectation here that the espn brand is going to take what will look like a small investment on or a small licensing deal and have it blow up over time. And that when you get to the termination of this or some sort of, you know, potential buyout or sale or change in structure, that ESPN will be in a much stronger place. But 
the sheer dominance of the two players makes this a much dicier proposition, regardless of ESPN's name. Fox shut down its own sports betting venture, Fox Bet, recently. So the assumption here has to be that the power of ESPN's personalities to push its gambling platform are what everyone's going to be banking on for this thing to take off and grab market share from the industry leaders. I'm not not a gambler, and I love fantasy football. And so I do think, I guess, the rosiest path forward for ESPN here is for something similar to what happened with fantasy sports. They run fantasy sports directly off the ESPN platform. And even though I think the platform is maybe the third or fourth best in terms of actual mechanics and functionality, it gets a boost because it's ESPN. Because people who don't know much about the world of fantasy sports, who aren't really tied into or linked to, especially, I guess, uh, middle-aged and older men who just know the brand, they're more likely to come into it that way. And so I think if you aren't already deep into the FanDuel rabbit hole, if you aren't already doing DFS, uh, if you if you don't know how to run a parlay, if you don't know what any of those words mean, maybe seeing ESPN on the ad gets you in the door. And I think that's the sort of value proposition here, right? There is a still as yet unactivated segment of the ESPN viewership that loves sports, that's plugged into it, that doesn't know what the hell an over-under is, and might be moved into gambling because of this partnership. Or because Stephen A. Smith said, go bet. You know, go right. to ESPN right. bet. Like, use using the personalities to drive. We've already seen that. Um, with sponsorship deals from FanDuel's and DraftKings on things like you know, Inside the NBA, which is sort of a barrage of ads um, featuring Kenny Smith and, and Charles. Um, so that's the, just as a, as a consumer of ESPN, Josh, it feels like that's where this could get really annoying. Yeah, totally. I, I think that's right. I think we've already seen ESPN lean into a few different personalities you know, it's Stephen A. Smith being one of them, cutting back the layoffs recently of a lot of frontline talent and really focusing in on the people that the majority of, I guess, the audience wants to watch or the people that are the biggest stars. And so I, I think Stephen A. Smith will definitely be a major presence uh, in, in terms of gambling uh, on on the network and on its various platforms. But it is just such a stark difference from the kind of coyness that gambling was discussed on networks, including ESPN and everywhere, to now it's kind of increasing inevitability as part of the sports viewing experience. I mean, we were trained as viewers growing up, Van, that if we were interested in gambling, it was a thing that you had to look to like specialized publications or like call 1-900 numbers or just like get a bookie who was like taking your bets illegally. I mean, it's it was always kind of in the shadows and that was abetted by the behavior of places like ESPN who treated it that way as something scummy and dirty. And it will just, there's going to be a kind of cognitive dissonance to see this stuff on a network where it was explicitly 
forbidden forever. And um, it sort of reminds me of, in one of its recent incarnations, Sports Illustrated, the talk was, oh, like, we're going to license the Sports Illustrated name to restaurants. I mean, it just sounds <laughs> desperate and cheap and sad. And, you know, the New York Times had a piece by um, Brooks Barnes and Kevin Draper that in just the space of a couple sentences um, put everything in, in context. It says, in the first six months of the 2023 fiscal year, Disney's cable networks division, which is anchored by ESPN and its spinoff channels, generated $14 billion in revenue and $3 billion in profit. $3 billion in profit at a time when we're saying, we work in media van. Like we don't, mm-hmm. we don't work at places that are talking about three billion dollars in profit. <laughs> um, and this is a time when we're talking about like ESPN being in a death spiral. But then in the next sentence, it's like profit plunged twenty nine percent in the last six months. And so it's just hard to keep both of those things in your brain at the same time. Like this is a desperate company that made three billion dollars just off of its cable networks division in six months. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you got to remember ESPN, I guess, along with the theme parks and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, those are the cash cows for Disney. They they make the money. And uh and also I guess Star Wars. So when you're up there with Star Wars, you've it's not just about how much you pull down, it's about telling the shareholders that we'll be able to pull down more next year. And when you can't project that you're going to increase revenue, essentially, it's might as well be worthless. And that's the the weird economics of a shareholder economy, right? So ESPN... Rights fees are increasing, cable subscriptions right. are going down, costs are up, revenue is down, you need something to kind of fill that gap. And the biggest sports-adjacent growth area in the American economy is gambling. It's gambling. And ESPN has always been the crown jewel of the cable package. If you want to sign up for cable, you want to know if you get ESPN or not. And now it's just not really the case. Um, And people don't. ESPN Plus and all the streaming they've tried to do, it hasn't really filled the gaps. So they're going to go for the growth area. They're going to go for gambling. They've already uh, tried to make much closer partnerships with the sports leagues they cover. Uh, now, uh, you've seen that sort of, for better or for worse, trickle into the actual journalism. They're asking, there's rumors now that they're asking uh, those leagues to actually take stakes mm-hmm. in ESPN. So that's where we are. They're throwing everything against the wall. Um, Pretty much. And they kind of have to. You know, they're talking about making ESPN streamable now you can get pay for it individually because you can't stream espn right now um this the the conversations with the leagues about buying minority stakes is a gigantic development i think um i mean you know we we've worried in the past or talked about conflicts of interest in terms of espn uh, broadcasting the leagues and 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 paying them billions of dollars um, and the influence that the leagues have over the coverage. Well, what's it going to be like if MLB, the NFL, the NHL, the NBA, et cetera, 
own 20, 30, 49% of ESPN. Um, this does feel desperate. And it's, you know, you, when you lay it out in terms of, yeah, right now they're still profitable and they're generating, you know, billions of dollars in revenue every quarter. It doesn't seem that way, but it sure feels that way. Big picture. Well, it's already in the journalism. You see Woj now on draft night for the NBA. He's not allowed to scoop the draft picks that are going to be on the broadcast of the ESPN broadcast of the NBA draft, Mm -hmm. even though every single good NBA reporter knows every pick, at least one in advance, but maybe two or three in advance. You see now they've gotten rid of Jeff Van Gundy from the broadcast team. And uh, he was always sort of a thorn in the NBA side because he always, every single chance he got on the mic, complained about the refereeing. And I think uh, that's kind of, you know, that sort of conflict of interest is going to be more and more par for the course. I mean, we've run ads for um, some of these gambling companies on this show. Um, I'm not opposed to it at, from a moral standpoint. Um, and if that's where all of the money is coming from, then it is it, in some ways, like we've been saying, impossible to turn down if you want to continue to be kind of an ongoing concern in this environment. Um, but Stefan, I think the thing to watch here is, you know, when you were putting together some notes for this segment, it's like, it seems like the entire Iowa athletic department is, I mean, I'm exaggerating slightly, but there's like a lot of players who are under suspicion for gambling. The NFL has suspended a bunch of players as we've talked about. Um, There was the Alabama baseball coach that we talked about. And so it's not just the question of like, how is ESPN going to cover this and be like, I don't know who, who could have possibly inspired these these players, where could they have possibly gotten the idea that this was okay? Like, I'm not interested in hypocrisy policing here, but um, there is going to be this ratcheting up on all sides of um, more advertising, more um, problems that are going to result from that within the leagues and and, um, the games themselves. And it's just something that we're going to have to deal with and and reckon with. And I don't think it should be illegal. It's just that um, it's just going to totally change the kind of sports environment that we're in at all levels in in ways that I think ESPN is going to be at the at the center of and like all kinds of different ways. Yeah, the NCAA reported that they had found 175 infractions of its sports betting policy since 2018, and there were 17 active investigations um, going on. And you think those numbers are going to go down when ESPN has blanket coverage of the spreads of, for the you know Michigan-Iowa game or whatever? I mean, it's already, obviously... Um, so easy to bet and the rules are not always clear to professional athletes let alone students the inundation of coverage of this stuff is going to ratchet up the number of quote unquote scandals that we that we have over over gambling and who can do it and whether it affects games i mean the the, the nfl for decades van was morally opposed to gambling on the fear that it would lead to 
a scandal, a point shaving scandal or other nefarious behavior. There's a long list of examples of that happening in college basketball. There's Tim Donahue in the NBA. Do we really believe in an environment where every league has basically accepted gambling as its savior, that we're going to have fewer conversations about the risks inherent for sports and the integrity of them? No. I should say, if you are an athlete and you are listening to this show, that sports books are designed to detect suspicious betting activity from cartels across the world that use sophisticated IP masking technology. Putting a fake name in your mom's Wi-Fi <laughs> will not do the job. I'm just going to put that out. I mean, I'm imagining a screen grab that somebody's going to have in September. Iowa's playing on ESPN. There's going to be a list on the screen of all the players suspended for gambling. And on the bottom of the screen, it's going to be over under point spread for that same game. I mean, it's somebody is going to snap that and we're all going to be guffawing about it. Yeah, the over under on the number of punts in the Iowa game. Up next... We'll talk about the very, very silly suspension of a Baltimore Orioles announcer for stating some facts. As we record this, the Baltimore Orioles have the best record in the American League at 73 and 45. If you've been following baseball for the last half decade or so, you might note that this is quite the turnaround, given that between 2018 and 2021, the Orioles put up such records as 47 and 115, 54 and 108, and 52 and 110. Impressively horrendous. On July 23rd, Baltimore Orioles play-by-play TV announcer Kevin Brown obliquely, very, very obliquely referred to those losing seasons in this pregame note about the Orioles' recent lack of success against the Tampa Bay Rays. It's been a minute. The Orioles split a two-gamer with the Rays in June. They had lost their last 15 series here at Tropicana Field. You have to go back to when our now colleague Brad Brock picked up the win in the series finale June 25th, 2017, the last time the Orioles won a series here at St. Pete. Pretty innocuous stuff, but last week, Baltimore journalist Matt Jurgensen reported and then Awful Announcing and The Athletic, among other places, confirmed that Kevin Brown was pulled off the team-owned television network Masson by Orioles ownership because of those anodyne comments. Stefan, Kevin Brown returned to the booth this weekend after two weeks away. Brown also said this on social media, Recent media reports have mischaracterized my relationship with my adopted hometown Orioles. The fact is that I have a wonderful relationship with the organization, and our ownership and front office has fully supported me since 2019 when I first came aboard. You will note that this is not any kind of denial of the reports that he was pulled off the air. So, Stefan, what do you make of this insane story? That it's insane and that the Orioles management and ownership must have a secret desire to return to those years of 45 and 118 or whatever you said, because this is just 
full-on self-sabotage of a great season. The Orioles were bought for $173 million in 1993 by a group led by a Baltimore labor lawyer named Peter Angelos. And this is important background to what's going on. Angelos, in his early years as principal owner of the team, spent a lot of money on players, and he, in fact, was viewed by fans and fellow owners as pro-player. When the owners shut down the 1994 season, Angelos refused to sign a statement blaming the players, and he subsequently refused to use replacement players on the field. He was hardly perfect. He was over-involved in baseball decisions. He hired and fired GMs left and right. He fought with the Nationals and MLB over cable TV rights. And significantly in the context of this conversation, he fought with broadcast legend John Miller, accusing him of not being apparently loyal enough to the team or too critical of the team or not an advocate of the team enough. And Miller ended up leaving for San Francisco in 1996. But Peter Angelos, who was a source of mine when I covered baseball for the Wall Street Journal, he's now 94. His health started declining years ago and his fail sons, John and Lou, are at the heart of this current silly scandal, or at least or at least one of them, John, because Lou sued John for control of the team. John, they settled, but John is the principal owner now. He's become a face of a lot of the pettiness and the criticism that the Orioles have endured in recent years. And that's all despite this newfound success on the field. So what a colossal fuck up. Way to step on a rake. The thing for me about this whole scandal is, okay, so I live in Prince George's County, uh, Maryland. And so the Orioles Park and Nationals Park are about the same distance for me, but I love cheap sports, man. So for the past few years, I've been going out to Baltimore. I give myself some French fries with some (laughs) malt vinegar. I go and I watch baseball and it is cheap because they sucked. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a good thing if you got an afternoon with your kid, you drive them out to Baltimore. You don't have to worry about traffic. You don't have to worry. You can buy tickets same day and it's beautiful. So actually the Oreos being good has disrupted my life. (laughs) I do not like it. I'm not a I don't I don't I'm not committed to a single team. Uh we don't have a professional team. Uh, uh, we don't have an MLB team in North Carolina. So I've always sort of drifted between fandoms. And over the past 3 years, what I can say about Kevin Brown, the voice of my Saturday afternoon nap is that he has been nothing but loyal to the Orioles. When they were out there being terrible. He said nothing bad about the team. On TV, he was a loyal soldier. And you know, you you hear a lot of team broadcasts, uh, especially when a team is bad, and the broadcaster loathes the ownership, the team, everything. And you can hear it, and that happens a lot. That does that never happened with Kevin Brown. So with this current scandal over him. Basically, you listen to it. He's praising the team. He's saying this is the best it's ever been for him in his years being a broadcaster. He's also reading something, Van, that was written by the Orioles PR department. Right. This was material given to him before the broadcast. He's enjoying it. He's out there. If you listen to him now, you watch the games. He's having a good time. And they hated on him for it. And that's just that's so Baltimore. It is. It's so quintessentially Orioles. And actually, I love it. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think with Dan Snyder out of the picture, John Angelus is just seeing there's a little bit of a gap in that market because there is a clumsiness to this. The way that this was handled, there was no way for people not to speculate and ask and dig in and try to figure out what was going on. This was like not a very stealthily done maneuver. And it fits into a pattern of behavior where John Angelos has said, oh, I'm going to open the books to reporters, like, you know, to show them about our finances. Never did it. When a reporter from The Athletic asked him about rumors that they were going to sell or move the team, he said, how dare you ask me this on Martin Luther King Day? He is a guy who um, likes to blame the media for saying things that are true. In this case, likes to blame the team-owned media for saying things that were provided to them by the team. You know, I think we can all agree that this was stupid. It's been universal among other announcers. Um, Gary Cohen of the, the Mets, Michael Kay of, uh, for the Yankees, um, Jason Benetti, who we've had on the show, have all kind of either joked about it or kind of excoriated the Orioles publicly. Like, I think it's a pretty simple, straightforward story. I think the the broader thing that's more interesting, Stefan, is this relationship that teams and team-owned media networks um, have with announcers. And this is something that's become, you know, it's a tradition that goes back to, I, I think, Red Barber, who, the longtime you know, legendary baseball an announcer for the Dodgers and, and Yankees um, of this kind of quasi but not really independence of um, particularly, I think, in in baseball um, of these announcers and what you're allowed to say when you're supposed to be or you're presented as a kind of neutral observer of the game. But when your checks are coming from whether it's George Steinbrenner or John Angelos or whoever else. Yeah. Um, and there's a, a history of varying approaches to the way that announcers have handled their relationship with the team. Josh, you put together some great notes for us to read before the show. And I was kind of shocked to read how Vin Scully was a complete chill as a Dodgers announcer. There's an example of in 1981, he didn't mention the possibility of a player strike like the day before it happened when Al Campanis, the Dodgers vice president, made racist comments about black executives in baseball. Scully didn't say much about it on air. So the there's always been this sort of fraught relationship between the announcer and the team that you know, that signs, signs the paycheck. What we're seeing here, though, I think goes even beyond that because what it's doing, Van, is it's revealing just sort of how petty the Orioles are. And there's a lot of criticism about the way this team handled its rebuild in recent years, stripping down in a sort of Houston Astros way, but not bringing up the young players to give them major league experience so that they can keep them off of you know, keep them from starting their accrued time in the big leagues and keep their salaries down longer term. Um, and the greatest detail, because you know lots of details we're going to leak out here, is that the Orioles require their broadcast teams to buy their own 
Orioles polo to wear on air, even the radio people. Um, (laughs) So this ultimately ends up reflecting so badly on the team. And it just brings up just how bad ownership has been despite the fact that they have the best record in baseball, which is what they should be generating. Best record in the American League. For. Let's not best record in the league. Oh, I'm sorry. American. Only in the American League. Yeah, the American League. Yeah. Well, I would say one thing that's clear um, that we should always note, the Orioles are sort of accidentally good. Uh, they, they had their own version of the process, and mm-hmm. it worked because they basically, the, the, the philosophy over the past however many years has been to cut payroll to make payroll as low as possible, to make it cheap. And now they are good and they want to be seen as, I guess, geniuses for putting the team together. And that's where they are. But I think, like, generally, as a person now who has has, has watched a lot of bad Orioles baseball, as a person who has absorbed a lot of this, I think you really just, you have to understand how cheap that team is. It is, in, in all facets of the game, it is yeah. cheap. The announcers stopped uh, going to away games during the pandemic and just sort of stopped after that. And that was the, the justification because of the pandemic. Uh, they The park is cheap. The food is expensive. The Just about everything about the Orioles screams budget. And that's kind of where they are. Third lowest payroll in baseball right now? Yeah, they're one of the lowest ones. And I think they want to be like the Rays, the team that, as Kevin Brown noted, has kind of owned the Orioles in recent years. The team that is not not only cheap and not only good, but like Van said, is praised for being smart. And Tom Skoka had a great piece for his Indignity newsletter that we then um, republished in Slate that makes the point that um, the losing happened. Like, if you want credit for the winning, you also need to acknowledge the losing. And the Orioles, this is a new approach to the process, or maybe it's similar to what the the Sixers have, have done. Basically saying that the losing doesn't count. That all of those right. years that we treated Van and other Orioles fans to losing baseball, that that didn't happen. That it is basically... It's not even a consequence of, of the the process. It's not a consequence of we tanked, we got good draft picks, we got young players. But, um, you know, those games that you went to, that you took your kid to, that you watched on TV, like, no. Like, the, it's basically just like, uh, you know, a dream. Like, we, woke, we, we were good in the mid-2010s and we're good now. What are you talking about? What are you saying that, that those years had? What are you saying that we lost all of those games to the, to the Rays? What are you talking about? It's uh, it's gaslighting the Orioles the Orioles fandom, and you know it's something that different different people have different opinions on whether if you do end up winning a championship or making a deep playoff run, does it actually make up for the years of our short lives that we have to spend watching teams not try and not compete? And so that's what Tom Skoga's conclusion was. This is, you know, Stefan, a new solution for that. It just didn't happen. And in a sort of a bigger picture with this team, you know, the Orioles were a darling in baseball. I mean, going back to the 70s, 
when they were incredibly good. Um, into the 80s and 90s when they built the first sort of retro stadium in the sport, uh, Camden Yards, which was hailed as this brilliant architectural and marketing and supportive masterpiece for this city. Um, and Angelos, as I mentioned, Peter Angelos, spent lots of money on players. He was, you know, the Orioles had one of the biggest payrolls in baseball for a long time. So this sort of squalid turn that the team has taken in recent years um, feels like we could end up in a sort of sell the team place, even though they've, as you said, Van, sort of gotten lucky and, you know, they're succeeding. They haven't gotten lucky. I mean, that. They took the people that it was a real process. They took yeah. the people that that did this to the Astros, um, that had the yeah. Astros lose a bunch of games and win the World Series, and they're trying to redo it. And they could win the World Series this year, and they're set up to win the World Series years to come. I mean, it's really hard to win a title. Other teams are smart too, and maybe less Gen Z. Um, but the fact that they are annoying and bad and stupid in lots of ways and kind of clumsy doesn't mean that they're going to lose. Like, no, it doesn't. And the Astros ended up being annoying and bad and clumsy too. I mean, that's, it, it's like, imagine a universe in which Dan Snyder did all of the things that Dan Snyder did, but didn't meddle in the ways that he did and hired like really smart personnel people and put together a, a great team that won Super Bowls. I mean, it's the thing with Snyder that was always so, like easy and fun is just like he was so bad and also so stupid. But those two things don't necessarily have to go together. For me, I would love to see the Orioles win a World Series. It is, uh, I, I think, uh, if we're going back to betting, they would be my current betting favorite. Um, and I am excited about, if I don't know, a, a parade going through Camden Yards. It would be so beautiful. And I hope that during the parade, during the broadcast on Masson, that Kevin Brown is allowed to talk about the last three years of baseball. <laughs> I'm sure that won't happen. Up next, Simone Biles is back. For Simone Biles, the Tokyo Olympics in 2021 were supposed to be the crowning athletic achievement of what was already the greatest gymnastics career of all time. But as you probably remember, she pulled out of the team finals and the in individual all-around competition after suffering from the twisties, a feeling that she didn't know where she was in the air. She said at the time, I just don't trust myself as much as I used to, and I feel like I'm also not having as much fun. Biles put out, pulled out of a couple event finals as well, but she did come back later during those Olympics and won a bronze on balance beam and was celebrated, rightly so, for prioritizing her physical and mental health. And that, a whole lot of people as assumed, was going to be it. The New York Times called it the end of an era. Well, now it appears that the era ain't quite over. 
A week ago, the now 26-year-old Biles returned to competition at a meet called the U.S. Classic, and as she so often has, destroyed everyone else in the field with both her technical brilliance and the difficulty of her skills with no twisties in sight. Rebecca Schumann wrote about Biles' return for Slate, and she joins us now. Hey, Rebecca. Hi, everybody. Excited to be here. So the roster for the U.S. Classic came out at the end of June, and Biles' name was on it. Um, but before that, did anyone have a sense that she was planning a return to competition? Uh, diehard gym fans had been mumbling about it for, you know, about six months or so. There had been grumblings. There were like other gymnasts who train at the World Championship Center where she trains in Texas um, had been posting training photos of themselves and she might have been in frame a little bit. There was uh, one of the national team coaches husbands said something on an unrelated sports podcast once but none of it was all just scuttlebutt like there was nothing confirmed it easily could have been explained away by like her parents own that gym and she's in there to say hi she's training to get in physical shape like there was out she said nothing there was no indication on official channels that she was seriously training for any competitions at all that's amazing. Like, not one Instagram post from a 13-year-old, not one parent leaking something to someone in the gymnastics uh, media. It's kind of an amazing stealth operation, on top of the fact that she wasn't training for as long as one would need to train to get back into top-level shape. Yeah, no, it is. And I don't think people understand. So first of all, that gym is huge. I mean, it's the Biles family's gym. So hundreds and hundreds of kids at all levels train there. Like it's a multiple thousand person operation. And I don't know what kind of NDA every single individual affiliated with that gym must have signed, but nobody affiliated with WCC leaked anything. The other thing that people have to realize is that the elite level girls and guys who train at that level, they do what's called two-a-days and they are in the gym all day. They're in the gym from like seven to 11 in the morning. And then again, from like two or three until the evening, like she would have been there during most of the gym's operating hours. It would have been impossible to miss her. So it's not like she snuck in at night. She was training with the regular elite girls, which is a group of about 10 or a dozen. And so it was, uh, yeah, no, the fact that no, you know, Excel Silver's mom took a payout from Texas Underground Magazine or whatever is kind of miraculous. Watching, um, I don't know, it, this is really amazing uh, just to have her back in the game. But also, I'm thinking about all the things that TMZ gets their hands on and not having a single leak, a single anything, uh indication i need that pr machine behind me i need that that level of stealth it's amazing yeah i mean i just for me nobody cares about anything i do that's my secret <laughs> um i think that in order yeah i mean the press would have had to camp out outside i don't know i mean i think that the world is really only interested in gymnastics every four years. And so like the non-gymnastics uh, fans derisively call the vast majority of gymnastics spectators four-year fans, which is sort of a fair-weather friend situation. And so that would mean that the sort of non-specialized media 
um, would not have been lurking around there. And I don't think that inside gymnastics and gymnastics now have paparazzi operations going on. Counterpoint, though, her uh, performance did make waves on social media. That is true. Um, But that is because it was an official competition comeback. So once it made, you know, the... Once the roster was announced, it was sort of like a Beyonce style, I didn't say anything, but here's my album drop situation. And that was, you know, the best PR campaign that could have happened because it was not only was she coming back, but it was a secret. And so then that, it was huge gymnastics news. And then that trickled into the regular news eventually. But by the time it trickled into the regular news, the meet was about to happen. So, um, yeah. So, so there are a couple of different things that she could have done stipulating that she was going to come back. She could have come back as an event specialist. She could have come back and done floor and and vault, the events where she's really um, just shown throughout her career. But that's not what she chose to do. She competed in all of the events, including the ones that she doesn't particularly like. Um, And so what did we see from her, Rebecca, in terms of like comparing this performance and this meet to other kind of performances at similar meets in the past? Um, More or less top form. I mean, so Uneven Bars is not her best event, and she had a minor break on it, but she also saved it. Like, she did a save that was indicative of just years of experience and just nerves of steel. So that, And she also got a really good score. Like, the mistake wasn't that bad. Then she went to Balance Beam, which historically has given her a little bit of trouble, but... um, not that much. And so she was super, super solid on balance beam. She didn't really have any breaks at all. She actually upgraded some of her difficulty on balance beam. And then her dismount has always been a little bit in contention. She can do the most difficult dismount in the world, but um, the governing body that valuates gymnastics skills undervalued that dismount. So it's not really worth it for her to do. And so you want, she did it in international competition once out of spite to get it named after her. And it's not super likely that we'll see that again. So it wasn't a huge surprise that she didn't do that, but she did add a new mount to the beam that was difficult and exciting. So that was great. On floor, we did not see her highest level of tumbling difficulty. We did not see the triple double. We didn't see her ending with a double double-double. On the other hand, the level of floor difficulty she did was about on par with what she did in Rio at the Olympics, where she had the highest difficulty in the world and won. And so it's still much more difficult than anyone else can do right now. But, um, you know, not the most that she can do. She was concentrating on her execution, her form, her landings, and they were really clean and brilliant and beautiful. And then vault, she brought out the Yurchenko double pike, which is the most difficult vault um, really anyone has ever done, but definitely any woman has ever done. And um, that was just absolutely thrilling to see it back after three months of training in earnest in the gym, just pulling out the Yurchenko double pike really out of, it felt like it was out of nowhere and it looked better than it did um, the last time she did it. It was absolutely stunning and spectacular. All right, let's be clear. So she basically trained for three months after having gotten married and done like a bunch of media about getting married. Um, And she not only comes back and competes in every event and does well and pulls out the Yurchenko, but she wins the competition by like five full points, which is 
crazy. You sort of wonder, like, A, how is this even possible? And B, if she ever needs to do anything ever again in her life uh, and not be considered the GOAT. Well, so to be fair, um, the kind of other super top Olympic level contenders for Paris were not competing all around at this meet. Not like no one brought their A game to this meet. Everybody, this is an off year still. Mm -hmm. And so um, had a Jordan Childs or a Jade Carey or a Suni Lee been in top form at this meet, the spread would have probably been less than five points. But still, I mean, Leanne Wong, who got the second place American finisher at this meet is still a really good gymnast. And so, yeah, five points for your non-gymnastics head listeners. That spread in like a basketball game would be like 45 points. Like it would be a blowout beyond imagination. Like I don't know what the biggest spread of all time in a, like a non-Harlem Globetrotters actual <laughs> NBA game is, but it would be like 10 points more than that. <laughs> so there's really no comparison to other sports about what kind of blowout amongst like legitimate, like no stooge competitors, like real competitors this was. She could have... Like I wrote in the piece, not only could she have fallen on every event and still won, she could have taken a second fall, like a bonus fun fall on one of the events and and still tied. It was exactly five points. So, um, yeah, I mean, this really does show that she could be training at exactly this level and go in with exactly this level of difficulty and win any international meet that she, especially with Russia out of the picture for the as as Russia for the foreseeable future. But the fact is that she's going to upgrade her difficulty again. Like Simone Biles is Simone Biles. She's not gonna, she's not gonna, if she goes to the Olympics, she's gonna bring a more difficult floor, somehow a more difficult floor routine than that because she's so competitive with herself. She doesn't want to hear the words watered down difficulty from a commentator, even though she shouldn't care. I mean, she probably doesn't, but it's just a little, she knows she can. And so I would be shocked not to see if not the triple-double, then maybe the layout double-double coming back, um, which is just a slightly more difficult first pass than she did at this meet. Yeah, I'm I'm curious what you all think, Van. Maybe you can take this one first. But the kind of tension that I see here is that in Tokyo, she was celebrated, and she should have been for, as I said in the introduction, prioritizing her physical and mental health. Um, she was given awards, medal, like the Medal of Freedom, you know, not the not the medal that she went to Tokyo um, and envisioned getting. And I think everyone who is has some level of empathy um, said, like, you don't need to do any more than this. Like, you, you know, you've set a great example for kids and everyone that enough can be enough. But for her, Van, she has she said. She didn't want to go out like that. Like, this isn't what she wanted the end of her career to be. She, this is not what she wanted necessarily to be the final culmination and celebration of her career. And so we can all, you know, go around saying, like, go Simone Biles, you're great. You don't need to do anymore. But, like, maybe she doesn't actually want to be talked about that way right now. Well, for me, I always thought that the ideal outcome would be Simone Biles uh, participating and going out on her own terms, whatever those terms might be. And so I think when uh, the episode of with the twisties and pulling out um, happened, I think 
we were trying to figure out what those terms would be. I think a lot of people sort of first realized that this is an actually physically dangerous sport, uh, that not being fully confident in yourself could result in serious injury, if not more than that. And uh, also that we're asking gymnasts, in particular gymnasts at that level who are women, who've already given so much of themselves beyond what should be expected in the middle of a time when we're in a reckoning with what they are asked to give. That all happens and that sort of becomes the point of how we respond to Simone Biles in that moment. I think her decision now to come back is telling us what those terms actually are. And it is still competing at the highest level. It is still going out. And I think at this point, it's going out for the love of it. And uh, she's showing that she's dominant. Um, But I think celebrating that dominance is now it's a little different. It's not the same as, oh, she's, you know, Michael Jordan of gymnastics or, you know, she's this sort of uh, singularly possessed person who is different from the rest of us. Now, Simone Biles is somebody who has the capability to do what she wills. And that is special. That's where we should be. And and beyond that, Rebecca, it's also about what she says when she performs. Um, and by that, I mean, when she dropped out of the Olympics, she was saying, I don't feel safe out there. I have the ability to say no. And when she took time off after the Olympics, um, she has basically said, I am an athlete who has punished my body for since I was five years old. And I need time to regenerate myself. And she is showing that it's okay to take time off to take care of yourself. She has the luxury of being able to do that because she's Simone Biles. But from a purely physical athletic perspective, she's also demonstrating that the pressure to constantly perform and battle through injuries is flawed. And she is proving that, hey, if I take time off to rest my body and my mind, I can come back even better than that. Simone Biles is asserting, again, her control over her sport and a lot of sports, all sports. Yeah, all of that is true. Um, Two things that are important, though, to think about alongside all of these very correct assertions are, number one, that it wasn't just for her health that she pulled out of the team final. She, and so that, yeah, that no one really understands. The twisties are an idiopathic condition, but they are, they have a cute name, but it is a medical condition. It has to do with your inner ear. It has to do with a sort of in-body vertigo. It's not just a quote-unquote mental thing. But when you have, like get the twisties in the middle of your biggest international meet of all time, uh, if she had stayed on that competition floor, Worst case scenario is that she would have landed on her head and potentially lost her life or uh, her mobility. But the best case scenario is that she would have taken a fall on every event. And the U.S. did not have a four-point spread to play with. And so she actually would have lost the team 
a medal, any medal, a medal of any color. They would not have finished on the podium if she had stayed on the competition floor. So it wasn't just for her. And so people say, oh, she walked out on her team. She walked out on her team. No, she saved that team's silver medal was because she walked off the floor. She did that for the team. And so that's a really important thing to remember. The other thing is that she does have a personal reason for potentially she hasn't fully announced that she's gunning for Paris yet, but her beloved coaches, Laurent and Cecile Landy, are French. And so she does have a desire to go with them to Paris, show out in their home country, be there for them. And it is actually they who have partnered with her in this non-combat comeback to make it so wonderful. She credits their really strategic coaching of her where she would only be able to come into the gym for a small amount of time before her wedding was over. And they've said, okay, well, here are the combinations we want you to do. Here are the miniature routines we want. They had the most perfect strategic progression of skills set up for her so that the second she walked into the gym, uh, nothing would be wasted, no time would be wasted, no exertion would be wasted. And they helped her get, I mean, she was came in ready to play, but their coaching got her to this space. And she's not, she's, you know, absolutely not shy in saying that. She credits them a lot. They have an incredible coaching relationship. She loves them. And that is also a huge difference from the kind of coaching dynamics that we saw even you know, four years. I mean, she's always had a good relationship with her coaches and her former coach too. But I mean, up until Rio, there were medalists who came in like Lori Hernandez with coaches who have now been banned from coaching for abusive practices. And so abuse in gymnastics coaching, not just the kind that we read about in the papers, but just your garden variety, berating people, not letting them eat, making them train injured, fear, authoritarianism. Like that's the Bella Caroli. Like that's what made Nadia. Like Nadia Comaneci existed because she was terrorized around the clock. And so to see the Landis have a completely different coaching approach, I mean, the other great thing that happened at U.S. Classic, in addition to wonderful performances and Simone Biles coming back, was that the girls from World Championship and women from World Championship Center did these hilarious celebration dances when they got when they landed their skills. Um, Jordan Childs is sort of the ringleader of all of this. Um, Simone bet Zoe Miller, who is in high school, that she wouldn't do like a little booty bump dance after she landed uneven bars, and she did. She got her two hundred dollars from the. Which is like a lot of money for Zoe Miller. I mean, for any of us, really. Um, and so they are bringing some fun and enjoyment back to the sport. Yeah. And, you know, it's always like a little bit iffy to be like, oh, these coaches are finally the good coaches because you never know. You never know what's going to come out later. But from all appearances, the Landys are just beloved. And they're also geniuses. They're geniuses in putting together combinations for maximum difficulty and maximum execution and also in just like knowing what their athletes can do. Before we go, it just has to be noted that Simone Biles was one of the many, many girls and women who was sexually abused by Larry Nasser, and one of the many, many girls and women who publicly called out USA Gymnastics for their role in abetting that abuse. And at this meet, um, Rebecca, in her press conference afterwards, 
she also called out USA Gymnastics or a, a team member, staff member at USA Gymnastics for basically telling her to her face in Tokyo that she was the golden goose. Um, and, you know, also talked has talked about how COVID restrictions in Tokyo, while necessary, left her feeling very isolated um, and kind of just all part of the swirl of things that just made it impossible for her to compete in that moment. And as you've been kind of talking about what Paris could potentially mean, it does just seem like an opportunity for all sorts of different things to be different and hopefully to come together, if not for her to win a gold medal or, or many gold medals, for it just to be a better experience for her and for everyone. So what I'm looking for in Paris, as far as Simone Biles is concerned right now, is nothing because she hasn't said that she's gunning for Paris. She says she's taking it one competition at a time. And, you know, the problems in Tokyo started with all of us in the world expecting her to perform a certain way and expecting a gold medal performance as sort of the baseline level of acceptability, whether we said that out loud or not, or whether we were mean about it or not. And so it is time to understand that she's going to compete when she feels right about it. She's not going to step onto a floor unless she feels good about it. And so it really is a one meet at a time thing. Of course, we would all love to see her in Paris. She would love to be in Paris with her French coaches, but that is something that is not owed to us and that she will, like, that's a call that she's going to make when she's good and ready to make it, just like she did, just like Van talked about with her making this call now. Rebecca Schumann writes about uh, gymnastics for Slate. Uh, We'll link to her great story in our show notes. Rebecca, thanks so much. Now it is time for Afterball, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. During our Orioles broadcasting discussion, there's a brief reference to this great story in the Los Angeles Times from 1988 by Larry Stewart and Ross Newhan that went that kind of asked the same question that we're asking now in the context of the 80s of what does objectivity in baseball broadcasting mean? How do different announcers and different teams approach it? Um, there was a reference to a bunch of references to Vin Scully that Stefan made earlier. Also, Red Barber, when he was calling games for the Yankees in the 60s, reportedly was fired because he asked that the director of the game show how empty the stands were. Um, so these are issues that have come up um, for decades and decades. But there was this one kind of passage that isn't super applicable to what we were talking about today that I still found fascinating. And that was in 1988, the Reds announcers who were employed by the team, Marty Brenneman and Joe Nuxhall, were calling a game on April 30th when there was this, at the time, incredibly uh, famous incident, which was um, Pete Rose getting into this fight, this dispute with the umpire Dave Pallone. They ended up kind of getting face-to-face. Rose shoves Pallone a couple of times, and Rose ended up being suspended by Commissioner Bart Giamatti for 30 days. 
Um, I'm going to read from the LA Times right now. After the incident, Brenneman said on the air that Pallone was incompetent. Nuxall called Pallone a scab because he crossed the umpire's picket line, union picket line in 1979. Several fans who brought radios to the game hurled them and other objects onto the field in a barrage that chased Pallone to the umpire's room. After looking into the case, Jamadi instructed Brenneman and Nuxall to see him in his New York office, correctly reasoning that they were within his jurisdiction since they are employed by the Reds. Amazing moment in baseball, sports, and radio history. I mean, this was a moment, I guess, when people were still bringing radios to the game to be able to throw them on the field. The other thing that I'll add to this before um, we move on is that Dave Pallone was famously outed later that same year by the New York Post. He resigned in September of the year from his position. He was outed. Um, and then this is from the Wikipedia article about him. He was alleged to have been involved in a sex ring that involved teenage boys. The New York district attorney later determined that Pallone was not involved and Pallone sued Major League Baseball for wrongfully terminating him. And he later received a substantial settlement. Pallone wrote an autobiography called Behind the Mask, um, which I think is worth worthwhile reading. And he is now uh, does diversity training. So very fascinating moment in time with lots of different repercussions. And I think Dave Pallone can be our afterball name today. Stefan, what is your Dave Pallone? I just reread Among the Thugs, Bill Buford's chronicle of English hooliganism in the mid to late 1980s. Buford hangs out with Mick, Dougie, Daft Donald, and other young men as they spread senseless and grotesque violence across Europe. What social mutation has resulted in these bored, ugly boys of the Union Jack believing they are entitled to inflict this pain, this fright, Buford writes. If you haven't read Among the Thugs, you should for the history and the incredible immersive reporting, but also for the contrast with the sport today, where football clubs are investment opportunities and acquisition targets, and executives try to market them into viral brands. The Welsh team Wrexham and its Hollywood ownership is only the most obvious. I stumbled across another one in my ancestral home, the second division Greek team Athens Calithea FC. Calithea, literally beautiful view, is a suburb on the backside of the Acropolis. Founded in 1966, the team plays in a 6,300-seat stadium built in a former quarry and nicknamed El Paso because it apparently resembles scenes from a 1965 Clint Eastwood film for a few dollars more. The stadium, which opened in 1970, is named for a liberal politician, Grigoris Lambraikis, who was assassinated by far-right extremists a few years earlier. Calithea FC made it to Greece's first division in the 2000s, but has been a second-tier team since. Last year, though, it was bought by a group that included Ted Philippakos, a Greek-American soccer executive and former NYU marketing professor. Philippakos's key credential? He'd helped revive a third-tier Italian club, Venezia FC, which was, I should note, owned for a few years by Joe Tacopina, Donald Trump's lawyer in the Stormy Daniels and E. Jean Carroll cases, who's also represented Dan Snyder. Philippakos' trick was to make Venezia sophisticated and stylish. He revamped the jerseys, he partnered with cultural institutions and universities, the team produced a photography book, and licensed rain and swimwear collections. GQ labeled Venezia the world's most fashionable football club. 
A second kit makeover by a German design studio and the Italian apparel brand Kappa drew even more attention, with a stylized gold V for the new crest and Venezia written in gold, in all caps, across the front of the jersey in a font suggesting Gucci or Versace. Filipakos is trying to do the same thing now in Greece. To give the team big city cred, he added Athens to its name. He hired those Germans for a sleek website and logo overhaul, and new kits from Kappa are pretty sweet. A collared blue 90s throwback home shirt with gold detailing and an elegant white away shirt with vertical gold stripes. The jersey sponsor is the nearby National Museum of Contemporary Art Athens. A jersey photo shoot featured a model leaning on a table in a taverna. The website of the fashion brand High Snobiety called the kit marketing Greek summer meets luxury athleisure shot street photography style. The idea here is to make Athens Galithea FC the city's hipster team, the little guy in fashionista jerseys sponsored by a modern art museum that plays in a cozy stadium in the shadow of the Acropolis. That's a far cry from Among the Thugs. But Filipakos knows the sport isn't beyond its past. He told a soccer and style website, the Culture Division, that one of Greek football's biggest problems, quote, is the way supporter culture has devolved as the negativity and divisiveness have pushed away too many people. And as the team was selling out its new kits and winning style blog raves just last week in Athens, this happened. A Greek soccer fan was stabbed to death before a Champions League qualifier between Athens powerhouse Ajax and Dinamo Zagreb of Croatia. Reports said extremist fans of Ajax rival Panathinaikos joined the Croatians in a premeditated brawl against Ajax fans. More than 100 people, including members of Dinamo's Bad Blue Boys Ultras, were arrested on murder and other charges. Hooligan groups in Italy, Portugal, and Ukraine expressed public support for the Croatians. Greek police were assailed for failing to stop the Croatian extremists from coming into the country. All of it, the brawl, the Molotov cocktails, and the bats, and the bricks, and the incompetent cops— all of it could have come 35 years on, straight out of Bill Buford's riveting and sadly enduring book. That's great, Stefan. Thanks. You were living in Athens in the 80s, was it? I was, yeah. What was the soccer culture like then, and did you go to games? I did not go to games because the soccer culture was violent and crazy. I went to zero games in my two years that I lived in Athens. I went to a bunch of basketball games and wrote about sort of basketball rising in Greece um, as the team was sort of competing on a European stage for the first time successfully. Uh, they ended up winning the Euros um, shortly after I left. But yeah, I avoided soccer culture and all of my friends and relatives did too. Have you ever been to a European soccer game? in person, Van? I have not. No, it's on my bucket list, though. Yeah, I've only been to a Premier League game, and I was not among among the thugs when I went to a Premier League game. It's a different... When I, when I covered the 1998 World Cup, um, I actually spent an afternoon hanging out with an English hooligan, anti-hooligan police officer as they sort of went around the city looking for trouble. Um, so it was still... You know, it still existed then, and obviously it still exists now, not on the same level and in the same places that it did uh, when Bill Buford wrote his amazing book. So are you rooting for this hipster Athens team to succeed, and are you buying the shirt? 
I don't know if I'm going to buy this shirt, but it does sound like a pretty cool proposition. And it is a really cool location. It's a, it's a cool neighborhood. It is really walking distance from the, uh, the backside of the Acropolis. And it could work because Athens, like every other European city, has a, a substantial cosmopolitan hipster population. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Van Newkirk, the show that you need to listen to immediately now that our show is over, is Holy Week. Uh, It's amazing. Van, thank you so much for coming on with us this week. Thank you for having me. For Van and for Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.